Good morning, MCBC Online. Welcome back. You're catching us in the middle of our teaching series on hope. This is week six of Hope Springs. And this week we're going to plumb the depths of a marvelous little book in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, and look at the subject of of what it is that brings hope when it feels like all of our earthly hopes and dreams have been dashed. This week I was reading an article in a Harvard research study that, that looked what, at what are called deaths of despair. Recently we had a three-year period for the first time in over a century where the lifespan of the average North American actually got shorter. The last time that happened was over a century ago, and the cause was the Spanish flu. Today, it's, it's not, surprisingly, it's not because of the COVID virus. It's because of what is being called deaths of despair. That is, deaths due to suicide and alcoholism and addiction. We live now in a day when our lives, especially the lives of our young people, are literally being shortened by despair. And we're going to talk about that. In fact, we're going to address that issue of despair head on. And, and for some people, I know this is a raw spot in your life. But I'm going to ask you to stay with us. And if you have a member of your family, maybe you need to go grab them and say, this morning, this is for you. Uh, tell the other people that you know. I, I want people that need to be reached with this message to be reached. And as we do so, I want to start with those words fresh in our minds, the words that have been our prayer for the series, these words from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope that God has been doing that for you. We've been learning together through this series that we need hope because we can't not think about the future. But we also realize that we can't control the future. We've learned that Christian hope is built on, is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. And that that event is at the heart of human flourishing. We've learned how to measure our hope levels, and how to take responsibility for our hope, and how to keep hope alive. Well, as Tim mentioned in our prayer, this is Valentine's Day weekend. It's also Family Day weekend. So you might think that on a weekend like this, that the subject of hope is, is relatively easy. Every family with kids who have grown up and moved away, they hope that they'll come back and spend the day together. Every family that's been locked down with their kids now for, for more than 10 months, they hope that they'll go away for just a little while and give you a day of rest. It's family day. But if you've worked at the church for a while, you realize that family day isn't a simple thing. There are some people who are grieving deep and painful loss this weekend. Good friends of ours lost both their mom and their dad in the space of a week. And this is a bittersweet day for them. There are couples among us who want so badly to be parents, and yet that hope has yet to be realized. 
There are children among us who are estranged from their parents. There are people who who are living significant, purposeful lives as single adults. But on family day, there's something about that that just makes them feel overlooked or undervalued. There are people who find the whole subject of family just too painful to even talk about it. Someone once called this caveat day because there's just so many sensitive situations around the subject of family or thinking of Valentine's around the, the subject of, of couples and romantic relationships that, that it's just laden with caveats. So what we're going to do is spend part of our time here on caveat day and ask the question, what do you do when the thing that you had hoped for does not happen. An author and a great teacher, a man named Lewis Smedes, wrote about an old cavalry motto. And it was simply this, when your horse dies, you dismount and you saddle another one. That's true of hope as well. You can't ride a dead horse anymore than you can ride a dead hope. So Lewis went on and said, life is a series of hope adjustments. What do you do? When reality isn't what you'd hoped it would be, you're not going to have kids. You're not likely to be married. You may not have the kind of marriage that you'd hoped for. You're not going to get into that school or have that career. Or on the opposite side, it looks like you do have that illness. Or you have fallen victim to that disease. Or you fall under the weight of that one problem you most wanted not to have. When your life doesn't adjust itself to your hopes, how is it that you adjust your hopes to fit into your life? And in answering that question, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to explore this story, a marvelous story of two women. We start by exploring the story of Naomi. Naomi had a husband and two boys. They lived in Israel, but during their lifetime, there was a terrible famine that forced them to lead their land and go in search of food. They immigrated to Moab, and there they hoped to live as resident aliens until the famine settled and until they could afford to move back home. While they were there, Naomi's husband died. She married her two sons to two Moabite women, hoping that they in turn would raise families and they could take care of each other. But after 10 years and no grandchildren, first her older son and then her younger son, both of them died. You know, a person who, who's lost their home is sometimes called an alien. A woman who has lost their husband is called a widow. A child who's lost their parents is called an orphan. There's no word that I know of for a parent that has lost a child. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just because it it seems to be such a violation of the way things ought to be that we can't even name it. And some of you know that pain too. Well, all of this, this recap of the story of Naomi happens in the first five verses of the Old Testament book of Ruth. 
And then the widow, Naomi, decides that she'll return to Israel. There is no heir. She has no children of her own. That means for her, the family that she and her husband had begun is now at an end. It means in a land-based economy that all of their land, therefore their livelihood is gone and it's gone forever. It means in a patriarchal society that there will be for her no status, no safety net, no belonging. And she has to adjust to all of this, to the loss of virtually every one of her hopes. The story narrows in and lands on a pinpoint in a very poignant moment between Naomi and her two daughters, Orpah and Ruth. They should stay behind, the girls, the daughters. They, they should live in Moab. They should find new husbands. They should start new families. The story finds them weeping together, the two girls and their mother-in-law. They weep over their dead husband. They weep over their childless lives. They weep for one another. And then their two daughters, the daughter-in-laws, they, they offer to go with her. But Naomi will have nothing of it. Listen to what she says. This is in Ruth 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, she says, even if I thought there was, <clears throat> there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and, and then gave birth to sons, would you wait with me until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, Ruth clung to her. If you're following along in your Bibles, you might want to circle the word hope in verse 12. Because in all the Bible, the one book that probably has influenced how people think about hope more than any other book in the history of the world, this is the first time that the word hope appears in Scripture. And it appears from Naomi, who has none. In verse 12, even if I thought there was still hope for me, which she does not, life is bitter. Even if I thought that, the Lord's hand has turned against me. Think about that. Go home, Naomi says. One of them does. Orpah kisses her goodbye and goes home to Moab to find another husband, to start another family, to become a famous celebrity TV talk show host. You know, Oprah is actually the name Orpah, just with a slight reversal, but same history, the same root. But Ruth, Ruth won't listen. Ruth will not go back. And it's Ruth who speaks these unforgettable, beautiful words that I learned in the King James Version, and I've, I've sung in the King James Version, so I hope you'll indulge me as I read them for you in the King James Version. This is Ruth 1, verses 16 and 17. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest, I will go, 
And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Who is this woman, this young widow named Ruth? You know, in the Old Testament, Abraham is often taken as the hero of of hope and faith. But Abraham was called by God. He received a clear word from God. He received the promise from God that he and his wife would have a child. Abraham received a covenant from God. That he could take his spouse with them. And when they left their home to start all over again, they took their possessions and their servants and their wealth and they had ahead of them the promise of an abundant new land and a new beginning. Ruth had nothing. Ruth stands alone. Ruth leaves behind her country and her people and her religion. She was barren. She received no promise from God that she would ever have a child, that she would ever be a mom. And in a patriarchal world, this woman, Ruth, commits herself not to find a husband who could bring her hope and save her, but she commits herself to an old lady who has no hope at all. And in an ethnocentric world, some of you will recognize that that Moabites, they were so despised by Israelites that they would never be allowed to join the assembly. Moabites worshipped the god Kamosh, sometimes by offering human sacrifices, a vile worship tradition. A despised Moabite is about to immigrate to Israel. And don't miss this moment. Don't miss the moment of Ruth's conversion. Because it's, it's hidden there in the words that she speaks, the promise, the oath that she makes to Naomi. Here they are. Your God will be my God. Your God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Ten Commandments, will be my God. And notice that she does this even though she never received that we know of any sort of calling from heaven like Abraham did. In fact, the whole book of Ruth is kind of fascinating in this way. There's no divine guidance in it, at least not on the surface. There's no burning bush. There's no still small voice. There's no angelic visions. Nobody gets miraculously directed or healed or raised from the dead. Ruth has to make courageous decisions and muddle her way through life the best that she can. Maybe your life feels kind of like that. This maybe would be a really good book for you. It tends to be a really good book for ordinary people because one of the most daring acts of hope and devotion in all of the Old, in all of the Old Testament is carried out by a penniless, a childless, pagan, uncalled, Moabite widow. I mean, go figure. And when it comes to an act of faith, 
Ruth leaves even old father Abraham in the dust. As somebody once said of an old movie uh, that starred Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire, that Ginger Rogers did everything that Astaire did, only she did it backwards with heels on. Well, here Ruth does everything Abraham did, but backwards in high heels. So you have these two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah responds to her loss by pursuing the same old hopes, and, and her choice makes sense. The Bible doesn't criticize her for her choice. Orpah did what any reasonable person would do. Ruth did what no reasonable person would do. In the Bible, we never hear of Orpah again. Her contrast with Ruth in this story, though, is meant to raise questions. And I wonder if maybe life right now is characterized by normal hopes and reasonable hopes that maybe are not bad, but have been so frustrated over these past 10 months that it's time to ask if God might have another deeper, costlier, riskier hope for you. So Ruth makes this completely unexpected, unreasonable step. If you were to ask her, Ruth, why would you do this? Really, there is only one answer. She was betting the whole thing on love. Not romantic love, not Valentine's Day love, not even family day love. She has a hope, not that her circumstances would turn out a certain way, but that somehow the world that God had made would turn out to be the kind of place where a costly act of love and devotion would not be wasted. And Naomi can't talk her out of it, so they return together to Israel, to Naomi's old hometown in Bethlehem. The text says the whole town is buzzing. They're so excited. It's our, it's our girl Naomi. She's back again after all these years. And they're so excited, but Naomi responds... Listen to her words, Ruth 1, verses 20 to 21, says, Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Kind of strange, isn't it, that this, this dark little speech makes it into the Bible? For people who think that hope is it's just the kind of chirpy, saccharine, pain-avoidant form of religious denial, hope is something adopted by people who lack the courage to look reality square in the face. That's not Naomi. Naomi says, women, if you think I'm just going to pretend that everything is okay, that you don't have to be bothered by my pain, you've got another thing coming. With Naomi, it's not just that she says my life stinks. She says my life stinks and it's God's fault. Are you listening, God? Do you, do you have anything to say, God? 
And again, the text doesn't comment at all on Naomi's speech. It doesn't say it's good. It doesn't say it's bad. It's just human. It's just real. And that's the only place where real hope can start. Naomi has this going for her at least. She is honest with God. And she knows that somehow God would prefer her authentic complaints to fake optimism. So maybe today for some of you, hope adjustment starts simply here with naming reality. Today, my life or this part of my life feels bitter to me. This dream has died. I've lost this thing that I treasured most, this person, this spouse, this marriage, this child, this friend, this work. But the suffering, it, it feels unbearable. Folks, hope has to start where you are. Not where you think you should be. Not where you wish you were. Hope starts where you are. One more observation about Naomi here. This is often true, I think, of us when life disappoints us. She doesn't see her own life altogether clearly. As she speaks to these women in her old hometown, but she speaks only about herself. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. My life, the Lord afflicted me. The Lord brought misfortune on me. I left here with a husband and two sons. I came back alone. But then the narrator of the story interrupts and points out, Naomi, that's not quite true, is it? You're not alone. In fact, the text goes on, verse 22. Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. No, no, Naomi, you are not alone, not quite. Ruth stands there with you. But in your suffering and in your pain, sometimes it's hard to notice that you're not alone. We all do this. We all tend to see life with a vision that is narrowed by our own pain. And often hope begins not necessarily when pain lessens, but when we see other people around us. And particularly when we see other people around us who are also in pain. And the thought occurs to us, you know, I could help. That thought came to a childless widow who was going through her own pain. It came to Ruth. I could help. I could help my mother-in-law. You know, God has given you more than you know. God has always given us more than we know. So if you find yourself on this day, on, on family day, on Valentine's day, caveat day, whatever you want to call it, having lost some of the things that you hoped for, maybe you want to pause right now and look around you and see if your life maybe, maybe is not quite as empty as you thought. You have a friend. You have a church. Which means you have a family of friends. You have a job. For many of you that means employment. But even if it doesn't, you still have a purpose. You have a home or a car or some gifts. You have an education. You have a mind. You have a savior. 
unlike a couple of weeks ago when I was literally alone in the room recording the sermon. I'm not alone this week. I have two of my dear friends and my colleagues with me. And so when I look at them and say, you have a savior, I expect their eyes to light up. I expect to see fists pumped and, and cries of applause and hallelujah. And, and if that's where you are, just feel free to let it go right in the room. You have a savior. It's this unnoticed gift, this litany of unnoticed gifts, this unacknowledged daughter who begins the rebirth of hope for Naomi. So let's shift now and bring the sermon home by looking at the other character in the story. Let's look at Ruth's part of the story. We go now to chapter 2 and verse 2, which says, and Ruth the Moabite. You notice in the first chapter, of course, when they're in Moab, Ruth is just Ruth. But they're not in Moab anymore. She's a stranger. Now she's an alien. Now she's unwanted. She's not just Ruth. Now she's Ruth the Moabite. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields And pick up the leftover grain, those things that are left behind when anyone, and see if anyone's eyes, in anyone's eyes I find favor. This This is really a striking development as we enter this new part of the story. What Ruth is really asking is to go and join the institutionalized poor of Israel. Those who are at the bottom of the barrel, avoiding starvation by taking advantage of a custom, indeed a law in ancient Israel called the law of gleaning. That meant that when an owner of a field was harvesting their field, they were not to go right to the edges and take every shaft of wheat, every kernel of grain. They were to leave some So that those who are institutionally poor and marginalized and set aside could glean the leftovers and have enough to eat. Ruth the Moabite didn't have to do that. Again, she could go back to Moab. Her her sister did. She could find a man. Not just that. Part of what's striking and what she's asking is that she's not just asking to join the institutionalized poor. She's going to go out into a foreign field as a Gentile, not just a Gentile, as a foreigner, not just as a foreigner, as a despised Moabite, likely to be shunned or even worse. In fact, later on the book, in the book it says that men in the fields who were gleaning had to be warned not to touch her. This is a dangerous world for women, and yet she's willing to risk it. And she's not just willing to do it, but it's her idea. It wasn't forced on her. She initiates the plan. She actually asks Naomi's permission so she doesn't have to offend her mother-in-law by publicly revealing their poverty. And as all of that's going on, somehow she has reason to believe, reason to hope that there is somebody out there who's going to look with favor on her, even her, a Moabite woman. 
Where does that kind of hope come from? I want to take a moment right in the middle of the story to look at the emotion of hope, at the experience of hope, so that we can learn from it and learn how to adjust it the way Ruth seems to be able to do. It's important to know the difference as we try and grow hope. Uh, The difference between hope as a physical sensation and hope as an emotion. Uh, A physical sensation, they have causes. Somebody says, why are you itchy? And I'd give them a cause. It might be because I, I wore this wool sweater today or maybe I have a rash. I'll never criticize somebody for itching. You just itch. But emotions are different. Hope is not a physical sensation, it's an emotional sensation. And emotions have reasons. And let's say I'm driving, for example, and the woman behind me pulls up close and she's honking and honking and honking, and I get angrier and angrier, it ticks me off, and I give her an extended version of my dirtiest look in the rearview mirror. And she pulls up alongside me and gestures to me that my rear tire is flat and wobbling. That's why she'd been honking. She wasn't being rude. She was being kind. Now I'm not angry anymore. I'm grateful she was trying to help me. She was trying to save my life. I'm grateful that she doesn't go to my church and see what I do for a living. My anger, that emotion, was based on a false belief, and it was wrong. It's important to understand this about emotions and emotional growth because, I don't know, maybe... Maybe your therapist has been telling you this for years. Certainly, this runs right against the grain of popular psychology, what I'm about to say. Because pop psychology wants to say an emotion isn't right or wrong, it just is. When you hear somebody say that, yeah, there are emotions that are wrong, it feels like it violates some standard of of what it means to be a human person. But hope, if it's going to be a real thing, needs a real reason. The emotion of hope, if it's going to be right and feel right, needs to be grounded in the right reason. I mean, isn't that, again, part of what's behind our theme verse for the whole series? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have, 1 Peter 3.15. I mean, remember, hope requires both wanting and believing, the emotion and the reason. If I want something and I want it really, really badly, but I believe I'll never get it, the result is despair. High hope plus no belief equals despair. Then my life is bitter. Then my name is Mara. Now, one way to deal with this, because none of us can survive indefinitely on despair, is to get myself to not want things so much. So I try to ratchet down my want. I tell myself I can live without it. Low want. Low want plus no belief equals resignation. Now, to be honest, resignation is probably a healthy way to deal with a lot of my crazy hopes. I'll never be Oprah. I'll never bench press 300 pounds. I'll never play keyboards for U2. I've just, I resign myself 
to some things. But each of us carries within us what might be called a, a master desire, or what the Danish thinker Kierkegaard called an essential passion. Your essential passion is that thing that you desire above everything else, that one desire that outranks all of your other wants. An essential passion is something that can really integrate and unify a life. It's the foundation on which your life stands. So you need to choose it wisely. If this is the reason for your hope, make sure you've picked the right reason. Ruth had chosen hers. Remember we talked about the moment of her conversion conversion and not to miss it? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Love. The love for God. The love for people. Had become the overriding passion. The essential purpose of Ruth's life. You can resign yourself to any outcome. You can downgrade your desire for all kinds of other things. I'll never own this. I'll never drive that. I'll never visit that place. I'll never marry her. I'll never look like him. But you need and you must, you must have an essential passion that is worthy of your life and that is certain, that cannot be lost. If that's the foundation of your hope, Your hope will not falter. What will it be? I mean, what is the one thing that's worthy of your life, your hope, your passion? And the unanimous testimony, not just of all the writers of Scripture, but all the followers who have ever looked to Jesus, is there is only one thing, only God. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing about this, he didn't say, may the God of resignation Fill you with tolerance for your destiny. No, he he said, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace so that you overflow with hope. Because the reason is so strong that the emotion spills out of you. That's what Ruth chose. She chose the love of God as the hope, as her essential passion. And so she was filled with hope in a situation that quite frankly didn't look all that hopeful for them. Hoping. Hoping, not just wishing. Hoping has a very strong bias towards action. Resignation doesn't act so much. Hope acts. Despair quits. Hope acts. And so Ruth acts. She acts in hope. Let me go glean, she says to her mother-in-law. And she takes action. And as she takes action... It's then that things really begin to happen. Let's fast forward through the story to the end. As she's out in the field, a man named Boaz sees her. He takes notice of her. And he asks a fascinating question. He asks the foreman, he says, whose young woman is that? And of course, the short, amazing answer was, she's no one's woman. Now, in the ancient world, if you were a woman, you were someone's woman. Your identity was dependent on a relationship to a man. You were your father's daughter. You were your husband's wife. You were your brother's sister. That's who you were. And if you were none of those things, 
You simply were not. You cease to exist as a person in society. And yes, it's, it's repugnant and it's awful. But that's the reality in which Ruth lived. For Ruth to spurn everything her culture said a woman was, to risk it all in order to express her love for another woman, her mother-in-law, this is a courageously subversive act. And Boaz notices. And he's not irritated by it. And he's not threatened by it. He must have been a remarkable man. To the contrary, he's marveled. He marvels at it. He admires Ruth. He admires his, her devotion to Naomi. And he begins to look out for her in very tender ways. And a wonderful little detail of the story in later chapters, because Boaz is a little slow in the romance department, Ruth actually proposes to Boaz. She knows that since Boaz is a, is a relative of Naomi, if she marries Boaz in that culture, it means that Boaz will care for Naomi as well. She'll be knit back into a family. This is an amazing, generous gesture on her part. And again, Boaz, Boaz marvels at her heart. Listen to what he says. This is Ruth chapter 3, verse 10. It says, this kindness, speaking about her desire to get married to Boaz, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. For you've not run after younger men, rather rich, whether rich or poor. Turns out there's something about middle-aged, 50-something men that's no longer attractive anymore. <laughs> Ruth and Boaz end up getting married, and, and by the way, they have a son. And the women of Bethlehem, the chorus in the story, they get together once again like they did back in the first chapter and they praise God and they're excited and they bless Naomi and they say to her, and this is in chapter 4, verse 15, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. I mean, are you kidding me? One woman, a daughter-in-law at that Worth more than seven sons? That's the kind of story that will make you rethink patriarchy and the worth of a woman all over again. Naomi says in, in 2.20, chapter 2, verse 20, that the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness. I thought he had, and I was bitter, but I was wrong. She's not Mara anymore. She's Naomi. She's herself again. And she holds that little baby in her arms. Not just a baby. Eight pounds of hope. Oh, and by the way, the baby's name is Obed. And he would one day grow to have a son of his own named Jesse. And then Jesse would have a son named David. Who would become king of Israel. And one day, there was a son of David's line named Jesus. And in the genealogy of Jesus, in the Gospels, maybe we shouldn't be surprised to see Ruth's name written right there. After all, his ancestor David was one-eighth 
Moabite. It was just a little bit of Moab and Jesus as well, which has to mean there is hope for anybody. Today, family day, caveat day, I'd like to invite you to do a little hope adjustment. Whether it's a hurt or a loss or a disappointment or or just gut-wrenching grief. Bring it to God. He'll give you wisdom. He'll give you wisdom to know the right course of action. But be really clear on your essential passion. Not just the things you hope for, but the one that you hope in. Do all of your human hope adjustments in the light of the one unchanging hope that is the foundation of all reality. Do it in Jesus' name. I was reading a book recently, a gift actually, about the year when England was being led by Winston Churchill, and Churchill stood alone against Hitler and Nazi Germany. At one point, Franklin Roosevelt, the U.S. president, sent his closest confidant to England. This was a frail, small, ill little man named Harry Hopkins. He'd been in really poor health, already in the grip of a disease that would soon take his life. And by this time, most of Europe had already fallen to Hitler. Austria and Poland, Belgium, Holland, Norway, France. But Churchill remained defiant. He continued to tell his people that Hitler could be defeated and that even if he could not, it would be better for them, as Churchill put it, to die choking on their own blood than to surrender to this evil tyrant. But it had become clear that England alone would not prevail. The only way they could win was through help. And they looked to the United States, but the U.S. public was in the grip of this really strong isolationist movement. America first. America only. And so Churchill turned all of his considerable powers of persuasion and charm on this little man, Harry Hopkins, to get help. To convince Roosevelt, to convince the United States to get into the conflict before it was too late. And at the end of this whole visit, there's this amazing scene held at a great banquet hall in Glasgow. At the very end of that long banquet, Hopkins said to Churchill, I I suppose you'd like to know what I'll tell the president when I return. Well, that was an understatement. The fate of the civilized world was in the balance, and Churchill and everybody in the room held their breath. Would the U.S. walk with England on a path that would meet blood and tears and sacrifice and death, or would it withdraw while the world fell under the shadow of genocide and barbarism and evil? Would there be hope? Hopkins said, you probably want to know what I'll say to the president. I'm going to quote to him, One verse from the book of books, in the truth of which my own Scottish mother was raised. And then his voice dropped to a near whisper, and he quoted, Whither thou goest, 
we will go. Whither thou lodgest, we will lodge. Thy people will be our people now. And thy God, our God. Winston Churchill, the great defiant lion of England, just wept like a child. And one of the attendees wrote about that banquet. We all knew what it meant. It was like rope being thrown to a drowning man. There is hope. Whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, there will I lodge. Thy people shall be my people. And thy God, my God. That's the story.